Father, we give you thanks for another morning to gather as followers of Jesus together. We thank you that we get to do this. We thank you for the blessing that worship is. We thank you for the blessing that worshiping community is, the gift that you've given to us. As I prayed earlier this morning, I prayed again that, Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd help us to make much of Jesus. That, Father, you would draw people who don't know you to Jesus. That, Holy Spirit, you would convict of sin. That those who don't know Christ would come to surrender. And those of us who do, God, that we would become more in love with you, more committed. God, do your work in a great way. God, for those who feel distressed or they're at a place where they're thinking, hey, things aren't, they're not turning out the way that I thought they would. I pray that this message this morning, that God, you would take it and use it and speak incredible things. God, take a, a meager effort on my part to see lives transformed and do the miraculous as only you can. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Anybody who agrees says amen. So Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 1, the very first part of it says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, if you just stop there for just a second, that was around between the years 1200 and 1020 BC. You said I go, okay, 1200 to 1020 BC. That's like almost, give or take, 3,000 years ago. So you're telling me that we can learn something from 3,000 years ago. I am telling you that we can learn something from 3,000 years ago. Why? Because human nature is the same. I mean, the things that we face, maybe we've got different specifics, but the bottom line is the same. That there's brokenness and there's sin, and we need to deal with that. And Jesus comes and gives us the remedy for sin, which is himself. But in reality, it's like, really, it kind of comes down to, there's one common denominator. And so I'm, what I'm hoping that you hear is this, because I read a commentator who said this about it, and I thought, man, if this isn't described today, I don't know what else does. The description for the culture that day, the book of Judges teems with violent invasions. Do we see that? We see violent invasions, apostate religion, unchecked lawlessness, and tribal civil war. I read those descriptions and I went, that's, the, that's today. But don't you feel like every generation could say the same thing? You say, well, where's, where's the tribal civil war? Well, guys, a lot of times we just think of right now, right where we live in this place. I don't see a whole lot of it except that November's coming. You say, oh, don't be throwing out politics again. I am going to throw out politics. Here's the reason. I got to be honest, I got rid of social media and I'm alive. Like I am and I'm so thankful. He's like, how do you know anything that's going on? I read. Well, how do you know what's going on in people's lives? I ask them. I read, I, I still get news. But all, what I've also noticed is that social media becomes our outlet for us to create our tribes. And this is my side and it automatically Think about it. When you hear someone who's from the opposite side, don't you automatically think that they're the enemy? I mean, let's be honest. So it is kind of tribal. We kind of get our sides, and this is about me and mine, and that's against them, and God, get them. And the whole time, maybe we need to pull back and realize and remember, we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven first. First, foremost. It's all about him. My citizenship is in heaven Guys, even within the church, around the world, but churches, we kind of get our own. I remember, uh, I think I've brought this up before, but if I haven't, uh, I remember playing church league basketball after high school because I wasn't good enough to play in college, and so I go on to the next league. 
which is church league. Y'all are laughing for a reason. Because it's like all the old guys, are, it's like our last chance. Our knees hurt and our back is exploding, but this is it. And so I remember, and I remember after seeing a person with a sign in the stands that said, thank God I'm a Methodist. I was like, okay. so it's like that, huh? And so I, had to, I went off on her. I didn't do that. I was just joking. But I was like, really? So even at a church league softball game, we were playing the Methodists, I guess. I had no clue. It's not like I prepare. We don't watch video of them throughout the week, guys. Let's get the game footage together and watch. You just, you just hope you make it through the game without dying. But guys, I still remember another game where there was a church. This was the game I was in. Honestly, I, start, I didn't start the fight. But I remember I stole the ball. I was going for a layup. Believe it, I had speed back in the day. I didn't have any skills, but I could go fast. And I had this breakaway layup, and I thought I was going to get to dunk it because I never got to dunk in a game before. And the guy wraps me as he, as he found me, and I fell to the ground. Then this guy that was, this was the only time he ever played on our team. I don't even know who he was. But it's like you invite anybody that comes on. He comes running off the bench, walks up to the guy and just clocks him right in the face. Blood, like this massive wound over his eye. He's pouring blood. I'm going, this is church league. I was saying one guy, one guy's doing this with another guy, with his shirt. He was on the track team at APU, and that was his, the hammer throw. He was in the, this guy was huge. I thought he was going to launch him. And I was like, oh, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Guys, we still have tribal, tribal civil war, don't we? Unchecked, unchecked lawlessness. Doesn't it seem like we kind of get away with stuff and it's actually being celebrated now? Guys, this is what we can learn from a book that's, or something that happened 3,000 years ago because we're doing the same things. But it's in the days of the judges, when the judges were ruling the earth, Guys, here's the scariest part in Judges. Judges chapter six, or 17, verse 6 will be up on the screen. In those days, there, were, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Guys, you know the danger of that verse? It's kind of what we're seeing today. I do what's right for me. You do what's right for you. But if your right for you hurts me, I need to get over it because it's your right to do it. Here's one of the scariest verses in all the Bible for me. And friends, this is why we are, we're, we're coming down to the end, hang in there. Um, God is showing us, I, I believe, um, and who it is that he wants to, as our, as our youth pastor, because we want to invest in the younger generation. Because in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. He's talking about Joshua and that whole older generation. Joshua brought them into the promised land, and then there's that older generation that was causing them to follow God. But watch this. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Think about it. A whole generation. Here's this generation that saw God bring them into the promised land, bring them out of all these, all these victories, all, these, all this warfare that they had, but cross the Jordan into the promised land. They're watching God coming through. And then the next generation didn't know the things of God. And it's very easy, easy for us to look at that younger generation and say, why, why don't you get it? But I guess I also have to the question, did the older generation pass it along? And friends, I want to make sure that we are, a we are a church that's always passing on to the younger generation the things of God. 
that we're teaching the things of God. And we'll, we'll some rebel, absolutely. Aren't we all rebellious? But to at least pass on the faith and trust that God is going to bless that, but to never say anything where they knew nothing of the ways of the Lord. To me, that is one of the scariest verses. And so because of that, they go into this massive rebellion against God. They're surrounded by all these people groups and they start to worship all the gods of these people groups. And while all that is happening, Ruth is happening. So in, back to Ruth chapter one, verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn just to be there for a time in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now he's from Bethlehem. And we always think, oh, oh, little town of Bethlehem. I love Bethlehem. I bet that place was so popular. Guys, there's like a couple hundred people that lived in Bethlehem at any given time. I mean, it's just a small little place. That's why it's the song, Oh, Little Town of Bethlehem. It's just this small little podunk town. But for us, it means something different because it's where the Messiah was born. So there's a couple hundred people. It's not a, it's not a big town. It's, it's very insignificant. And the, and the name Bethlehem means the house of bread. And I think it's ironic that in the house of bread, that land that's known as the house of bread, is where they're experiencing the famine. And a lot of times in the Old Testament, famine would be connected to rebellion, the rebellion of the people, and that God would cause a famine. And I'm not saying that's what it is all the time. But I would say that in this time, because it's mentioned in the book of Judges, and Ruth is happening in the book of during the time of the Judges, that this famine that they're experiencing, even the, those who loved God, they were experiencing the famine, which was God's judgment because of what the people of Israel were doing. And so it's insignificant at the time, but it's not insignificant to us because it's where Jesus was born. And then it goes to verse two. It says, the name of the man was Elimelech. Elimelech's, Elimelech's name means my God is my king. And the name of his wife was Naomi, which means my delight. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. And they were, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now here's what, here was the belief of that day. <clears throat> in the land, like in Bethlehem especially, since this is the name that's mentioned, it was believed this is where God is. God's presence is where the people of Israel is. So in the promised land is where God's presence is. Now we look at Bethlehem. You're where God's presence is. And then they go from there to Moab. You say, well, what's the big deal? They just needed to get out of where there was no food and get to a place where there was. Guys, Moab, the Israelites were actually told to avoid the people of Moab. Now, for some, they sit and go, see, this is, this, is, this is proof that the book, that the Bible is a racist book. Guys, do you really think that was the point behind it? The point behind it Guys, it was during the time of the judges that Moab, and Moab had invaded Israel and ruled over the people for 18 years. The Jews were forbidden to marry Gentiles, especially from Ammon and Moab. It was the Moabite women in Moses' day who seduced the Jewish men into immorality and idolatry. So what's the big deal? Guys, they had these different gods, and God's going, I don't want you to have any other gods but me. And so if all of a sudden you go and marry people who are worshiping these other gods and they draw you away from God, do you see why God said they're going, I want you to have nothing to do with that. It wasn't a racial thing. It was a spiritual thing. You say, well, I mean, is it really that big of a deal? It is to God. Guys, you realize that because of that act, they were seduced and a lot of the men, the Jewish men went and married uh, Moabite women and began to worship these other gods. 
The Old Testament tells us that 24,000 people, it's in Numbers 25, 24,000 people were, were killed. God showed judgment. And we sit there and go, Brian, that's not fair. And we begin to, then we begin to question God's character. Is he really that good and great? Isn't it amazing that we'll take our limited view and perspective and then look at God who's perfect and decide whether or not he's righteous and good when outside of Christ we're just simply sinful? Do we actually believe that our sin deserves death? Guys, when the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, do we actually believe it or do we actually see our sin as just simply making a mistake? Because isn't it the same? It's like, well, sinning is like, I kind of made a mistake. I'm broken. I mean, I couldn't help it. Sin is active rebellion against God. So until we see the severity of our sin, grace is never truly amazing. Until we see the severity of sin, we'll actually look at God and think that he is not merciful or gracious enough. He's not compassionate, and yet he is the epitome of all of those qualities. Now my question is, was Elimelech actually living out his name? If his name means my God is king, and they're experiencing the famine. And I read a lot of commentators who are sitting there, and they're kind of blasting a lemon like a Naomi for leaving. And again, you have to look at God saying, I want you to have nothing to do with them. Because of their practices and how they worship these false gods, I don't want you to fall into that. But parents, if all of a sudden you're looking at your kids and there's no food, would you start to freak out a little bit? I would start freaking out a little bit. God, what do I do? Are you going to provide? Are you going to come through? Do I actually believe that my God is king? Or do I believe that he's king, but not an all-powerful king? Like, yes, he can handle the big stuff, but he's not involved in the small stuff. Or he can handle the smaller things, but these massive things, he definitely leads my help. Elimelech's name means my God is king. And I guess I want to pull us back and say, do we actually believe that to be true? Is my God my king? Is God your king? That means sovereign ruler. Or is he just a good addition to your life? Like he's in your pocket, you can pull him out. He's like a genie. When things get rough, you can have him come out and fix some things, but I'm not going to do what you say. And yet he's supposed to be Lord and master, not just savior. To verse three. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. This is while they're in Moab. And she was left with her two sons. And these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah. And the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Isn't it amazing that the sojourning turned into 10 years? What was supposed to be just for a little bit until God provided and we can go back home, it didn't turn out that way. And we're going to have the whole family go, and then all of a sudden we're going to have a happy thing going. Like we have our family and our boys are going to get married. They're going to have grandkids. It's going to be great. But when you're there... Naomi loses her husband. He dies. And then her, her sons marry Moabite women, which I'm thinking maybe she was going to have a hard time with. And then you watch the rest of it. Both Malon and Chilin, her, her kids, her sons, died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And 
I know that today, it's still even hard today, but in that culture and in that day, the plight of the widow in the ancient Near East was unbelievably difficult. Women lost all social status. And generally, there, were, there was no political or economic status for them. And unless they had a male protector or provider, they were just left to themselves. Most of them would have to beg. So this is a big deal. I mean, it's one thing to lose your husband. Now you still have your sons who can take care of you. Now you've lost them. In other words, guys, things didn't, I don't think they panned out the way that Naomi thought they would. And how about you? Have things panned out the way that you thought they would be right now? Like when you imagined your life, for those that are a little older, like 20 years ago, and you think of where you are now, did you plan it to be like this? And some would say, it's better than I thought. Praise God. Some would say, ah, it's harder. Like I never thought I'd have to face this. And this part has been the hardest part. And maybe for some, that's caused you to draw nearer to Jesus. But maybe for others, it's caused you to actually push away. And this isn't a guilt thing. Like I can say, how's that worked out for you? And I know I bring that up often. I'll ask the question. Because I think that responses to things that are going on, reactions, I should say. I think reactions to things that are going on, that's natural. But what happens? Like, I didn't plan this. I didn't plan this sickness for me or for my kid or for my friend. I didn't picture that this would be financially. I didn't picture all of these things that are difficult that I'm having to face. I didn't picture this. It's not panning out the way that I thought it would. Especially, especially if we had been taught, if you give your life to Jesus, it all turns out like gravy. It all turns out perfect. And I did the four things I was supposed to. I remember hearing a message, the four things I was supposed to do, and they still left. Or I've done the things that I believe Scripture teaches in health, and I'm not experiencing that. You ever had the plan, and it didn't pan out, and you begin to wonder, God, really? Like, where did you go? What happened? How do I handle disappointment? How do you? How do you handle disappointment? I think there's two, two options. We can either resist God in times of disappointment, or we can submit to God during times of disappointment. There's really no middle ground. We can resist him, or we can submit to him because here's the thing. Isn't it easy to believe that God is sovereign ruler over the universe when everything in the universe is running the way that you planned it? Like, think about it. When things are great, you're saying, oh, God, you are sovereign. You might even get in conversations with people and explain how great life is in the moment. And you're sitting there going, God is so sovereign. I mean, I give him all the praise because he is sovereign. And then the junk hits the fan. And everything changes. And the difficulties come. Are we still going to sit across from that friend when the roles have switched and say, and God is sovereign? Or do we actually believe that God's sovereignty is dependent upon the circumstances that we go through? Do we actually believe that God 
has nothing that he can teach or help with or grow us in in the difficult times. That everything is supposed to be perfect and if it didn't turn out that way, then God said, oops, but he'll fix it. Just hang for a couple weeks. He's got you, but there's a lot of people on the planet. He'll fix it, don't worry. Guys, God is sovereign over everything. But Brian, this is hard and I know Brian, it's hard to see God in this. I know that I've, as I've had conversations and met with people for the last, just the last couple weeks, it is so hard at times to sit there and go, okay, but just hang in there. How, I mean, how often have I texted many of you saying, as I've said, hey, how is this going? How is this going? And you tell me, and it's gotten harder, and I just go, just hang in there. Because what else am I going to say? I'll fix it. I just got a diagnosis. I'll fix it. I got it. I'm a pastor. I can do surgeries. Why do I say hang in there? And I say this phrase often, because if you don't see God's good in it yet, it's because he's not done yet. If you don't see his good in it yet, it's because he's not done with it yet. And so I say you keep hanging in there, and you keep thanking God for grace. And you keep thanking God for mercy. And what I'm begging those of you who are beginning to resist or you're looking at God and you, even if you're becoming more skeptical or cynical, but you're finding your attitude toward God becoming not one of love and adoration, but it's starting to lead to bitterness. I'm begging you, oh, repent and come back. Because I don't know how people can do the things that we all have to face, the difficulties that come our way without him. I don't understand it. As you imagine if all of life was just a luck of the draw? This is what you got. No purpose behind it. This is what you got. Even if there's, even if there's this belief that there is a deity, like God set it all in motion, he's just like, he, he set the watch in motion and then left. Even if that's your belief, what's the purpose behind it? But if I look and go, okay, wait, 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 wait. God who is sovereign came, became a person and endured everything that we have to face. Physically experienced things we will never experience. But guys, to walk through life, I guess he was 33-ish when he ascended and went to heaven, but he had 33-ish years on the planet. You know what it's like to lose a father? He He knew that when Joseph died, he knew how hard it was for his mom. He knew how hard it was for him and his siblings. Guys, when he would see brokenness and people of desperation calling out to him, and he would heal some and not others. Guys, I don't understand why not all. I don't understand why now God, even as I pray, that God doesn't just go, boom, it's done, we're finished. Every single thing you just said, yes to all of it. I don't understand because in my mind, just do that. But in the ultimate, incredible, majestic, mind-blowing mind of God, He's doing a greater work, a greater work. And so when it does not pan out and when disappointment sets in, you hang in there. You hang in there, don't resist him. Don't run from him, but go to him. And it's in this place of disappointment and heartache that we read verse six. 
Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. It's that phrase that stood out to me, the Lord had visited his people. And it made my mind jump to Luke chapter 7. It's in Luke chapter 7 where Jesus, is he has this massive crowd of people that he's been teaching who are walking with him. And then there's this considerable crowd that's with this widow who is going to bury her only son. Sound familiar? And as, he's, as, as, as the funeral procession is going, Jesus walks up and then looks at the woman and says, Woman, don't cry. Mamas, what would you say to a person if you're burying your kid? And he just walked up, didn't say what he's doing first, just looked at you and said, Mom, don't cry. How many of you would chop him in the throat right then? Because it just seems so insensitive, doesn't it? Except that Jesus knows what he's going to do. When Jesus, or when God seems insensitive, just trust. Wait just a second. Take a breath. Because maybe he knows what he's going to do next. Because then he goes over and he touches the buyer and, the, and all of a sudden he's like, get up. And he sits up. And he begins to talk. And it says that Jesus gave him back to his mom. Changed everything. And what was the people's response? I think the first one was something like, hey, a, a great prophet is in our presence. But then they said this very phrase, God has visited his people. God has visited his people. Here's a mom whose whole social standing was going to change drastically. No male there to protect or to provide. So it wasn't just that Jesus gave her her kid back. Jesus gave her her social standing back, her protection back, her provision back. He changed everything back. Because when God visits his people, he changes things. Right, I don't see it yet. It's because he's not done with it yet. Guys, I guarantee that mom on her way to bury her son was not sitting there going, but I know God's going to come today and bring him back from the dead. But isn't it beautiful that a whole crowd of people, they started with calling Jesus prophet, and then all of a sudden they go, wait, 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 God has visited his people. And here, this is the same statement that's being said here. God has visited his people, and he's provided food. He, she gives all credit back to him, even in the midst of all the loss. And friends, when you see later on about Naomi, and she shows up back in Bethlehem, and they're saying, is it really her? Is it really her? And do you realize, and I'm not giving anything away, but we're going to look at this, I think, next week. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Why? Because the name Mara means bitter. Oh, are you that honest? Are you that honest in your journey with the Lord? Are you that honest when you're by yourself? Okay, that's one thing, but are you that honest with other followers of Jesus where you can sit there and go, no, don't, don't call me this because I'm, I'm feeling pretty bitter. I'm pretty bitter. And we're going to see in just a second for this week who she's kind of blaming. She says, but don't call me Naomi, call me Mara because I'm bitter. So she hears there's food. She looks at her daughters-in-law and says this. And she says, we're going to go back. Verse 8. Go return each of you to her mother's house. Now here's the thing. Don't you always hear using the scriptures to your father's house? Go to your father's house. Go to your father's house. Guys, the only thing that I found here, a commentator had, had written about this, that in the Old Testament, the mother's house has to do with preparations for marriage. And so what she's looking at him saying is like this. Hey, you, you don't have my sons anymore. 
So don't come with me because, and she'll even explain it later on, I'm not, I'm not going to have any more kids for you. Like even if I got married today, it's not like I could have kids. I mean, you're going to wait for my kids to grow up. And if they're sons, you're going to wait for them to grow up so you can get married to them. Just go back to your mother's house. In other words, go back and start a new life. Verse 8, continue with verse 8. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the, with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. And then she says, I can't have any more kids. We're down to verse 13. It said, would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is, ex- watch this, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Oh, that's not preached very often. How dare she be that honest? Guys, she believes that the Lord's hand has been against her. That God himself has thrown all this stuff on her And she says, okay, I'm bitter. It's like, why would you want to come with me? Think about the life. Think about the life that you've seen. We show up in Moab. And while we're there, my husband dies. And then there's this this moment like, okay, things are going to get better because they got wives now and they're going to have grandkids. I'm going to be a grandma. And everything's turned out great, but before babies come, your husbands die. Why would you want to come with me? The Lord's hand has been against me. Just go home. It's almost like she feels what? Cursed. Isn't that what it sounds like? It's just, I can't, no, don't come with me. And the daughters-in-law response, verse 14. They lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Guys, that word clung is such a strong word, isn't it? Like, I don't just picture, like, I just don't want to go. I'm going to miss you, like, holding each other's hands. I'm going to miss you so much. It's like, I'm not going. You ever, <laughs> you ever seen the kid or had the kid? Christmas time, introduce them to Santa. And you're like, go on, go on. And all of a sudden, it's like, <clears throat> they just cling on you. <sighs> they just lose it. And they're just clinging on. And there's a little bit of you going, okay, I like this about 2%. Because I know that you like me, but you're embarrassing the crud out of me. Get off my leg and go go meet this really big dude with a beard that you have no clue. We say, don't talk to strangers except this one's fine. But it's that cling. I'm like, I'm not letting go. I'm going to hang on. I'm I'm not going anywhere. See, Naomi tried to convince Ruth to go back and to go with her, with her, with her sister-in-law. It's like, just go where she's going. But look at Ruth's response to, to her. It said, verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. 
Guys, here's the part that got me in what she said. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. We look at Naomi's life, everything that she'd been experiencing over the last 10 years, and how she's moved from a place of, well, God has been good in providing, we've moved to this place, to now God's hand is against me, and I'm bitter. But guys, do you ever wonder if there was still something in Naomi that caused her daughter-in-law to say this? Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Was there something about, it doesn't say in the passage, I'm just asking the question, is it possible that even though, even though Naomi was bitter and experiencing all this hardship that had come upon her, is it possible that Naomi was still showing faithfulness to God that spoke to Ruth in such a way that when Ruth compared God, the only true God, when she compared Yahweh to all the false gods that the Moabite people were worshiping, is it possible that she's sitting there going, wait, 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 I've seen this and how it's not right, and I've been introduced to God through you. So here's the thing. I'm going where you go. Your people are my people, and this is the biggest one. Your God, who you say your, his hand is against you, your God is now my God. Is it possible? That Naomi, in the midst of bitter suffering, still showed the difference that God makes in the midst of bitter suffering that a young woman could look and say, I want your God to be my God. And is it possible that when we go through times of suffering, that we do it and we're honest with God and we're saying how hard it is, but we're still looking and going, God, this is so hard, but I still trust that you're good and you're great. And I still trust and rely upon your grace and your mercy. And I know you're compassionate and you're striving. We're striving to bring him glory in all of it that others around us would sit and go, okay, I see how you suffer with your God and therefore I want your God. Is it possible that when I looked at God and said, God, I surrender to you my life, and I want, to, I want to know you and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in your suffering, that the fellowship of sharing in the suffering is Jesus might actually bring people to Jesus. Is it possible that what I suffer is for my good and ultimately for his glory? Even if I don't see the good in it yet, and the beauty is that as we go through this, you'll see God and how he interweaves himself. Like, this is an interwoven story of God and Ruth and Naomi and how he redeems, redeems the bitterness and redeems the horrific things that they were experiencing to bring about his ultimate plan that ultimately would not be seen by them or by anyone else for a couple thousand years. Is it possible? Listen one more time, verse 16, to Ruth's words. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Should this sentiment not be the same sentiment that we as followers of Jesus say to Jesus when we surrender to him? Should it not be this same type of commitment? Read it from that perspective of us as followers of Jesus saying this. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. 
Guys, do you see it? Guys, the invitation to follow Jesus, it is so much more than raise your hand and say these words. Hey, if you want to be saved, raise your hand and say these words. Hey, if you want to be a Christian, raise your hand and say these words. Every head bowed, every eye shut, so nobody can see. Just say, raise your hand, say these words, as if all that Jesus has ever asked us to do is just pray a prayer and say some words. But when I hear this, this one usually doesn't make it on any kind of doily or card. Hallmark has never used this on, the, on a greeting card. But when Jesus says it, Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In Luke chapter 14, verse 33, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And you look and sit there and go, wait a minute, Jesus actually said hate? Like, if you don't hate your father or mother, your wife or your husband, your family, I can't be a follower of Jesus? I remember having a, a middle school kid at the time, a couple years ago. His mom texted and said, hey, could you, uh, could you help my boy? Because he read this part. And he says, I can't hate you, mom. You know, imagine her heart just swelling. She's like, oh, that's so good. She's like, but does that mean I can't follow Jesus? You know what I love about that question is that he was honest. But here's the thing. When you read Luke 14 and you read the same account in Matthew, Jesus explains it. And this is why I want to say, guys, read the whole book. Read the whole thing. Why? Because the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. Because in, the, in, in Matthew's account, he says, you have, to love Je- you have to love God more or love Jesus more than wife, husband, child. It's like, it, this is a shock statement, right? Everyone's like, ugh. He knows that you know he doesn't want us to hate people. Why? Because I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I can't love her and hate her at the time. But he's saying, love Jesus more. Love Jesus more than my wife. Love Jesus more than my boys. Love Jesus more than my family. More than my friends. More than my job. More than anything. More than where I live. Love him more. Brad, I don't know if that's possible. It absolutely is possible. And I promise you this. You love Jesus most and you'll love others best. We cannot love the way that Jesus loves without the help of the Holy Spirit. And people can't be loved well by us. By Jesus. They won't experience the love of God through us without the help of God. Because have you ever read what love is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and thought, I can't love like that. Love is patient. Done. Already failed. It's kind. Doesn't envy. Doesn't boast. It's never arrogant or rude. It's not self-seeking. Oh, crud. Brian, I can't love like that. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. I can't love like that, and I think that's the point. I can't love like that, but the Holy Spirit can change me and love others like that through me. When Jesus makes this statement, unless you renounce everything, you cannot be my disciple. Doesn't that sound more like 
Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Doesn't that sound like the covenant commitment that we make with God as followers of Jesus or that we're supposed to make? Isn't this what it's supposed to be? All in, Jesus. All in. And what's beautiful is that we are reminded of this from a young little Moabite woman who said, I am committed. I'm not going anywhere. Wherever you go, I'm going. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Do not urge me to leave. We should have the same mentality when it comes to Jesus. As the worship team comes back up, there's this old song, and maybe those who've been brought up in the church who remember this, as I start to say the words, it's not a hymn, but it's an older song. Once I say, I have decided to follow Jesus. Everybody know that one? Right? I have, and then it's just, it's like, well, what else is it? That's pretty much the whole first verse. I have decided to follow Jesus. Third time, I have decided to follow Jesus. And then there's this phrase, no turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. And how committed are you, specifically, you personally, to Jesus, to follow Jesus no matter what? I think, it, listen to this next verse. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. It's first and foremost a yes to the invitation of Jesus to follow Jesus. Not with me and who's ever with me. It's him only. Me and Jesus. No turning back. Even if I'm all alone, Jesus, I'm about you. And don't urge me to go some other way. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Where you go, I'll go. Why? Because you're my God and I am your son or I'm your daughter. I'm your child. I'm your servant. I'm your disciple. Don't urge me to go the other way. Even if everyone else turns away, I will not. You, Jesus, are worth it. Friends, that's what we're called to. Not simply show up to some event, raise a hand and be done with it, and there's nothing that it costs you. Discipleship costs everything as we follow Jesus who's worth it. And I've made the decision, and if I'm the only one that goes, I will go. Because it's about him. Don't urge me to change. Jesus, it's about you. And when disciples are like that, those are the kind of disciples that God uses to change and revolutionize and revive a home, a neighborhood, a nation, 
The world, the world doesn't need to see more people who just simply call themselves Christians. The world needs to see the Holy Spirit moving and acting and speaking and loving through true disciples of Jesus who say, though none go with me, still I will follow. The cross before me, the world behind me. I have decided to follow Jesus. And how strong is this commitment? No turning back. No turning back. Let me read verse 16 again, and we'll, we'll close the morning together. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Friends, we're going to time it a prayer just a second. Then we're going to sing, but I'm going to ask those of you who are comfortable with praying with people is when we, as I begin to pray, if you'll just go stand on the sides. And for those that say, I'm kind of in this distressed time, things haven't panned out the, th- the way that I thought they would, they would love to pray with you. You say, Brian, I, I have prayed. Guys, we don't just pray once. We keep praying. We keep praying. Guys, when all feels hopeless, keep praying. But there is something that happens. If you, if you want to see community get even deeper in our church community, we need to pray together. We need to confess our hurts and our sins to one another that we might experience healing. It will not happen showing up on a Sunday morning once a week, looking at the back of people's heads, listening to me, watching me sweat. It doesn't happen that way. Community happens when we go eye to eye, knee to knee with people, and we say, this is what I'm struggling with. Could you pray? And if you're a place of distress and your things haven't panned out the way you thought they would, it's not this, it's not this judgment. Thank you for being honest that we could pray. But let us pray. Let us pray with you and for you. That's not a guilt thing. I'm just, I want to make sure I constantly invite you to that. Let's pray. For those who feel comfortable to pray with people, if you stand on the sides as we close up. God, I thank you. I thank you for the story of a young little Moabite girl who became a young woman who married into a family who then had to lose her husband. All that leading her to come to a place where she said, your people will be my people and your God my God. And we're still talking about her over 3,000 years later. And I believe that you have so much that you want to teach and instruct and encourage and convict us through this whole series as we go through this book. But for today, God, God, for those who are at that place, oh, they're just hurting. It didn't pan out. Oh, God, thank you that you will meet them. Thank you that you will, you will work. You are working and you'll bring it to completion. But, oh, God, give them hope in the process. But I pray that today they would sense it's okay to make it known. God, for those who are here that have never surrendered to you, God, bring them to a place where they surrender to Jesus as the Lord of their life. God, as we sing this last song too, as we engage in prayer with one another and for one another, and all that happens, God, to you be all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor for you alone are worthy. And we pray this.
this in Jesus' name. And all of Christ's followers say, amen. Love you more than you know.